Laughing and Weeping, the Year Beginning Conference. Over the New Year 2009 holiday, Father Richard Rohr and Russ Hudson presented a teaching of the Enneagram to over 600 people in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Questions and Responses with Father Richard Rohr and Russ Hudson. Richard, um, you had talked about the importance of walking through pain. How does a person know when they're still walking through it versus being stuck in it? Okay. Uh, you know, I don't think I have any profound, uh, maybe not even helpful answer to that. I hope it's helpful. But uh, if you're in any way using it as your identity, that you find it hard not to obsess about it, talk about it, uh, you're probably stuck in it. Uh, and we can do that, strange as it seems. We can get attached to negative things, and they become forms of identity. They become forms of conversation that we get used to talking, let's say, about our pain. Uh, now, I think for a short period, especially after real trauma, that's absolutely necessary, and we'd call it grief work, and we're not very good at grief work. But um, if that extends too long, it becomes toxic. It becomes identity. It becomes actually a, a barrier uh, uh, that makes relationship impossible, because the only way you can connect with me is, is through my pain. So it's necessary for a short time, and I think that's just wisdom and good relationship, honest relationship, which leads you, okay, it's time to uh, say this is reality. Uh, this is the way the Paschal mystery works. <laughs> and I've got to let the other side of the Paschal mystery show itself, which is resurrection, transformation. Yeah. But I, I, by saying that, I don't want to underplay the importance of grief work, the, the necessary what will feel like an attachment to it, <laughs> working with it, struggling with it, being without feeling for a while. Uh, that's necessary and good, and we need a lot more permission in that area, I think. Um, this is for Russ primarily, and if uh, Richard has something to say, I'll be... You know, that'd be great. Uh, in um, Jungian um, psychology, there's a lot of work with archetypes, okay? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the mother, the father, the child, the hero, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, how does that correspond mm -hmm. with the Enneagram? And especially, what part is the child? Yeah, interesting question. Um, In one sense, um, I think the first temptation is to try to make everything match with the Enneagram types. But that's not always how things work with the Enneagram. I would say more that, particularly with relation to the sense, the archetype of the child, you could say that each Enneagram type holds that child in a different internal constellation like each type has a particular relation to the child. Some types might have a kind of uh, exaggerated identification with the child, 
Some feel like they left that poor sniveling kid behind, right? There's different ways that each Enneagram energy dances with the, the particular archetypes, and I kind of hold it that way. Yeah. I can make a, a superficial connection, and you don't want to tie it too tightly, which is probably why Russ didn't do that, and I agree with that. But the men uh, in men's work have asked about it so much because we use the four male archetypes. And this is the somewhat superficial but often true correlation. Take it for what it's worth. The one and the three are most identified with the king. The four and the five most identified with the wise man or magician. The uh, two and the seven most the lover. And the six and the eight, most the warrior. And the nine, as always, we never know. <laughs> all of the above, right? <laughs> all of the above, yeah. But it's really true. They're jack of all trades. And, and the nine can sort of try on all of them for size and never get over-identified with any of them, which is what makes mm -hmm. nine so easy to relate to. Yeah, the, it, it's a complicated question because I, I would totally agree with Richard. Some of the archetypes do line up more specifically with Enneagram energies, whereas others are more universal in how they're experienced. So Jung was, had a lot of stuff. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Richard and Russ, uh, yesterday, several times I heard kind of an astonishment when it was announced that we had an introverted eight in our midst. Uh, which always leads me to wonder how does, it's a follow-up on the previous question, I think, how does something like the Myers-Briggs add dimensions to the various numbers? I know that could be a long answer, but just a brief comment about the relationship between those two. Well, um, before we get into the deep waters of Myers-Briggs, if, if we're just looking at the... Um, what the Myers-Briggs is based on, some of the observations of Carl Jung about uh, personality dynamics such as introversion, extroversion, uh, thinking and feeling and so forth. He didn't have, uh, Myers-Briggs added a couple of them. But um, for me, again, uh, people have tried to have a one-on-one -on -one correlation like um, if you're an INFP, then that would make you a nine. Well, it doesn't quite work if all those statistics that they have in Myers-Briggs about the percentages in the population are true. There's certainly more than 2% of the population that are nines. So I'm, I'm a little, there's certain functions in Myers-Briggs that seem to go with certain types, like obviously fives are going to be more T and fours are going to be more F. There's certain things you can say. Introversion and extroversion is a trickier business. Uh, for one thing, I've not never met anyone that was all one or the other. In fact, in a lot of uh, psychological circles, that would be seen as a kind of pathology, mm -hmm. right? If you were only introverted or only extroverted, that would be a problem. Most people do need some time alone to recharge, and most people do need to get energy from interacting with people sometimes. But I would say that within any given Enneagram type, there is a range of introversion or extroversion. Like there are, to use your example, there are eights who are way more introverted than other eights. But you could also place those ranges on a scale. Like if you had 
total introversion or total extroversion, you could maybe say, okay, sevens are going to be a little bit more this way and fives are going to be a little bit more here. But you could actually find some most introverted sevens that would be more introverted than the most extroverted fives, if you see what there will be overlap. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of like, do you understand what I mean? There, I just see that it is a much more fluid thing than people usually talk about it. I was just going to add, uh, there have been an awful lot of doctoral theses on this subject, the correlation between the Myers-Briggs and the uh, Enneagram. You could Google it, I'm sure. I, I've had people do that. Must be several dozen people yeah. have tried to show the correlation. Yeah. Uh, Father Rohr and Russ, I wanted to ask you, uh, recently, we were presented on television with CEOs and CFOs sitting, looking into the cameras with this sort of dough in the headlight look. And we come to find out that their corporations are billions of dollars in debt. Uh, we find companies going bankrupt. As a nine, I'm very concerned about the mother who is single and working and now is not, does not have a job with the bankrupt company. But I guess my real question is, what kind of people are these? <laughs> <laughs> that would let such things take place? And is there any hope of redemption for these kind of people once they jump out of the plane with their golden parachute? You know, let me just try this. Uh, that when there's a corporate, and I know we often do this, try to apply number energies to countries and to nations. Uh, when there's a corporate acceptance of a sin, if we can use that word, right, mm -hmm. then it's very hard for the individual to see that as sinful because it's, it's glorified and deemed as good. And if we are, as we are, an overwhelmingly three culture, uh, then any attempt at success or ambition will not be cited inside of America. So I'm, just, I'm not trying to get these guys off the hook, but in a way it's true. The only way they could get away with such greed is because we've all agreed that greed is good, you understand? And it's, a, it's our corporate collective shadow in America. Ambition and greed are good for the economy, good for America, good for the world. And we even used to have that phrase, what's good for GM is good for America. Isn't that strange <laughs> that it came back to bite us? <laughs> uh, so that would be my only response that I, I don't think they, they seem to be very enlightened people for the most part, but they certainly reflect uh, the unenlightenment of America as a whole. And that's why it could get that far yes. without being cited. Do you follow? Yeah, yeah I absolutely agree. And mm -hmm. the, uh, the way we talk about it in our Enneagram work is to look at, at the, what we would call the structure of the inner critic. Uh, Freud introduced the idea as superego, but it's an idea that's evolved over time. But um, most people's idea of good doesn't come from spirit whatsoever. It comes from programming, right. pure and simple. Right. Mm -hmm. The most heinous acts in the world 
are usually done by people who think they're doing something good. I was in New York on September 11th and watched those towers come down. And I can tell you that the guys who were flying those planes into those buildings thought they were saving the world. So what, we, what can we learn from it? What's interesting to me is, yeah, there's a lot of unconsciousness out in the world. Yeah, there's a lot of bad programming. Yeah, there are people doing very corrupt things. What I would invite people to do, first and foremost, is to begin to examine your programming. Your programming is not an objective indicator of good. And many things that we understand about that, we, we always take it for granted that that is an objective arbiter. And you can bet those guys who screwed up those companies thought they were doing the right thing in terms of the values that they were steeped in. So what can we do? Well, I always say begin where you are and start to see what assumptions do I have about all this stuff? Right? How can I clear my own programming so that something a little more radical might be able to come through? Yeah. Okay, I think my question is to both of you, and it's for those of us who are newbies and either have finally agreed to accept what we think our number is, or are still struggling with trying to figure out that number, what would you recommend as our first steps, you know, our first baby steps in, in this whole process? Well, if you're asking about working with the Enneagram specifically, I think one a bit of advice that comes to me is that I think people get a little too hung up on getting their type. Like you're going to get a gold star if you get it quickly. <laughs> and you know, it's really in some regard, in certain ways, it's the booby prize. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> and it's why I personally do not type people. For me, going around typing people is a bit like saying, oh, there's these Harry Potter stories and here's how they end. See, so the process, the reason you look for your type is because it's designed to initiate exactly what Richard spoke about at the beginning, the development of an inner observer. The most important thing that I would wish for you is not just that you get your type, because that in two dollars you get a ride on the New York subway, right? It's the looking that counts. It's the observing. You know, Anthony DeMello used to talk about the awareness, uh, the grace of awareness. And so what you're, we're actually interested in here is cultivating our awareness of ourselves to just notice what we're actually doing, to notice what's happening in our heart, to not just collapse into the little stories that we have about who done what to who, right? So anything that, even if you don't know your type yet, I'd say don't pressure yourself, it makes it harder. 
just start observing yourself throughout the day. See what you're doing. See what you're fantasizing. Don't take it as a given, right? And to begin to just have a more objective sense is, is, this, is a step toward what, what Richard was talking about of, of this inner observer. That's the thing. And that is critical for opening us to all the things that, that I've been talking about and that we've been talking about. That's certainly the best overall answer. We do have a little rule of thumb, if it'll give you any <clears throat> consolation, uh, that very often, I, I hope this might be your experience too, uh, Russ, uh, if people who can't figure it out after some time of inner observation, in my experience, are invariably a six or a nine, right? <laughs> in my experience. Yes, I concur. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because the six, God bless them, they want some authority to reassure them that, the, that their analysis is correct. That's the humility we have in sixes, you know. The rest of us arrogantly charge ahead. The six wants that little Am I really a six, you know? So it'll take them a while to get there sometimes. And the nine, uh, I hope I'm not saying this cynically, but in some ways, because they don't care what number they are. <laughs> so they sort of procrastinate even their decision on that, you know. Well, you might, gee, I'm like all of them, right? <laughs> yeah, you might look at six and nine. If after a while nothing coalesces. The only other thing I'd say is look at the triad first. Am I basically heart space, basically head space? Of course, you got to get an analysis, and I think we uh, had one given to us the last couple of days of what those energies are. But uh, if you localize the triad, first of all, then inside of that, you, you might more easily find your space. Yeah, it helps to narrow it down. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, it's very cute. I just tell a funny story that sixes also are forever second guessing themselves. Yes. It's like, I know, but what if I'm wrong? Yes. <laughs> and I had a, just a humorous story. I was uh, teaching at the Esalen Institute and there was a person there who came, a, a lady, and she came every time I was there, would come and, and just badger me with questions about the Enneagram. Didn't come to the workshops, by the way. And, <laughs> and, and kept asking me, what do you think I am? What do you think? And I'd talk with her. I wouldn't tell her, but I'd ask her questions. Finally, she said, I can't stand this anymore. You are the authority. You tell me what you think I am. I can take it. So I said, okay, my impression is that you're a six. She said, no, I'm not. That's <laughs> 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 so typical. <laughs> Whenever you have that authority position, uh, what sets in motion is the anti-authority position. That's why sixes can be real rebels, always fighting authority, because they need it so much, and they hate themselves for needing it so much. That's Do you right. see? So it moves back and forth. Um, I guess uh, my question is for Russ, I suppose. Um, Russ, I read your book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, and I took it's all... The best. I'm sorry? It's the best one. Oh. Really, and I'm not saying that to be nice. It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually um, took every one of the questionnaires, um, which was fascinating. And I, I, I guess I have a two-part question. I, it, my score for one and two or one point 
apart. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a one and a two, it would appear, mm -hmm. one point apart. Um, could you speak to what that is um, in a non-dualistic way, I guess? If I'm, I don't have to choose between a one and a two, I suppose, since uh, Richard has okay. kind of invited us not to. And then the other thing I, I am curious about, having done all nine of the questionnaires yeah. and gotten a score, I just kind of put it on a map yeah. of what it looked like, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of fascinated by the whole. So can you speak to both of those questions? Yeah. I think so. Thank you. Um, yeah, first of all, tests, any test, including all of ours, and I don't just mean Enneagram tests, psychological tests, any statistician will tell you there's a limited capacity for them to be always correct. So take any test with a grain of salt first. Tests, at their best, I think, help um, prime the pump of our inquiry and they help focus our questions and direct us toward looking at the right areas in ourselves. So, it, and sometimes they do come out right, but often they'll get us down to two or three types and, but then that gives you some focus to your exploration. Um, when it's a situation as you describe, where it, it could be one is the main type and one's the wing and you're not sure which is which, um, study the, the pattern of the arrows. In other words, if you were a one, primarily, we would expect to see significant components of seven and four in certain circumstances. Under stress, you would behave more like a four. Ones get despairing that their idealism isn't working or that they're not good enough and they collapse into this kind of four. Uh, despair, uh, and any anybody who's really a one will know exactly what I'm talking about. And once, as I was speaking about in the uh, when we talked about that uh, the other day, also this capacity to open to this sense of wonder and curiosity that's related to point seven. So you would see yourself moving in a whole dynamic. It, 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 when you've got it right, the whole thing snaps into place and it makes sense. And whereas if you were two, your dynamic would be to eight in stress and four is a kind of opening. So, and there's many other dimensions to that, but I just keep it simple for now. As for the other thing, I really like what you did. I, I think there's great value in seeing how we dance with all nine energies, how they sit in us. And all the people that we train uh, in our institute to actually go forward and teach this stuff, we insist on it. Because if I'm actually going to facilitate and help uh, a one, I have to know the one in me. I have to be able to resonate with that person and hold them in my heart and know at least somewhat what they're struggling with. See? So I think it's marvelous to look. In, and it, once you've got your main type, it, it doesn't get you off the hook from the other ones. You see, you still have to resolve the particular issues and dimensions that the whole thing is a mandala of the entire self. So we've got a particular vantage point into that whole thing. That's what our type is. It's like where we're looking at the whole thing from. But in fact, we are ultimately the whole thing. Um, 
Russ, I'm curious how, uh, how a, a psychological crisis, maybe in somebody's life under severe pressure or whatever, might affect um, their, 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 their core personality type. Does it, uh, in my mind, I have this image that it kind of bounces to, to other numbers or, or does it just descend deeply into the, to the uh, dysfunction of their, of their number? Um, that's somewhat unpredictable, but I'll just tell you a general thing I've observed over time. People will tend to, if there's just sort of chronic stress or difficulty in a person's life, they'll tend to use their stress direction on the Enneagram more. For instance, I as a five, if I'm just under a lot of pressure and not getting enough rest, watch me turn into the quick-minded motor mouth running around and I'm just running on nervous energy and then I'm in the, the, the difficult part of seven, right? Now, um, when we have a sudden crisis that broadsides us, we will tend to, in, in Dawn in my parlance, fall down the levels of our own type, right? And if we've learned something about our own psychology, one of the reasons why self-knowledge is so important, you can find your way out of that quicker if you know yourself. You know, if your whole sense of well-being is based on externals, on your relationship, on, your, on how much money you're making, on those things, something goes wrong, you've got no internal resources. So that self-knowledge is part of what helps us when we do that. The only other thing I'll add, and I'll say this because you will, if you are a counselor or you're in any way in a helping profession, sometimes I see people falling down the levels and then they'll shoot over in a powerful way to their stress direction. We call that shunting, where somebody will come in and they'll present, I think this person must be a four. But then I talk with them and get their history. Oh my God, this person worked for care in Africa and they did this. Now this is not the life of a, this is a one who's, it's like we go down and we jump over that thing to keep from falling down to the very bottom of our own type, which would be more psychologically destructive. So I do see that. That's brilliant. A question primarily for Russ. Um, the three, six, and nine, uh, I'm, my type is a nine. I'm an INFP, so I'm traditional nine, I guess. Very good. <laughs> uh, but I'm close to the middle. I, I like what you said about I and E, because I'm near the middle on I and E. But my question has to do with the fact that as a nine, I move to uh, three in security and six in crisis. So I'm moving around those, and I've read a lot about the three, six, nine being wounded in the very energy that they're in the center of. That's so right. my dynamic is to move from woundedness to woundedness. <laughs> and so my question is, uh, how do I tap into the energy of my triad? Is it through my wings, through the healthy overcoming the blockage in my nineness, or is it both and? Okay. My sense is and I'll use nine as an example rather than talk about it abstractly. Um, what happens is we start to bring the awareness to how we're limiting ourselves. And that's true of all the types. We're all 
saying no to some aspect of our being. The funny thing about three, six, and nine is we're in a sense saying no to a very central aspect of our being, but all three of those types do that to because they believe they need to, to stay in a relationship that's critical to them. Read that with your mom and dad when you're a kid and everyone else important later. Like as the nine, if I have my strength, energy, and you know, can come out like that, that's gonna mess things up. So I better just not go there. So what I do see is that every time those points, three, six, and nine, start to emerge from that, like as a nine, as I start to really get what it means to be here, to embrace my instinctual energy, my aliveness, the eight and one issues pop out. Suddenly, here's your anger, hello. Hi, I'm, I didn't think I had any. Now I want to kill everybody. <laughs> I want to mash things, right? And oh boy, I didn't realize it was so sarcastic and judgmental. Where'd that come from, right? But there it is. I, I've taken the lid off. And ultimately, you see, we get a little hung up on the types, but really we're talking about resolving our relationship with the whole centers. So that's kind of how it happens for the triangle points. But no matter which Enneagram type you are, you're ultimately learning. The whole thing is directing us back to being present in our body, in our heart, in our mind, which is, in a sense, as I keep saying, presence is the grace of awareness. It is the divine. It's like inviting God to work in all the domains of our experience. God won't come where we don't invite God. We have the right to say no, but we learn how cool things are when we say yes. So we're learning to say yes in our belly, yes in our heart, yes in our head. And when that all starts to come together, then all the, the nuances become they're just ways of talking about what is going to help that process work, you see. But keep coming back to it's about being in all three. That's the point. Are there certain spiritual practices that you would um, say are very good for certain triads? Like is there some sort of correlation between a specific spiritual practice and a type? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's what uh, Hinduism, uh, the, the oldest of the religions, was already trying to address in what they call the different yogas. I know to Western Christians that sounds like some uh, pagan term, but a yoga is simply what you're, you're describing as a, a discipline or a practice. And uh, bhakti yoga, for example, you go to India and you see the, the, these loving people pouring oil over the the statues are putting flowers in front of them or lighting incense. It's very heart-centered. It's creating an altar for the beloved and, and bows and kisses and gestures are, are always going to make great sense to the heart people. Uh, I think that was an element that Protestantism really didn't understand. It, it almost eliminated uh, bhakti yoga or the heart devotions. 
Uh, we in the Catholic tradition, I know when I have Mass at Holy Family, uh, early in the morning you'll see the little Mexican ladies coming around touching each statue. <laughs> now, you know, someone would say, oh, that's paganism or that's superstition. No, that's the heart which needs touch. It, can't, it doesn't want to process it all by head ideas. It needs a devotion, the lighting of a candle, you understand, or the, the burning of incense that, that feed the senses. Uh, and these are oversimplifications, but the yoga, of course, needed for the head people is, is something to, to stop the tyranny of the head. So it's no surprise that Buddhism came out of, uh, you know, probably the five, six space and developed this subtle, subtle perception of the mind like no other religion has and, and learned to recognize the, the tyrannies of the mind and the addictions of the mind. So um, meditation and contemplation is a serious practice. You can't just play with it to seek moral superiority or a name for yourself as a contemplator. But serious practice seems to be somehow necessary for, uh, for head people. Um, I taught to, to several of the groups yesterday the, the practice of walking meditation. Uh, I think very often, I don't want to make universals or absolutes of any of these, but very often we gut people need something like uh, the Yahweh prayer, the breathing prayer, or walking meditation, something that includes the taming and the releasing of the demons of the body, all right? So we can be present to it because we're, we're so in our bodies in a good way, but also in a bad way. <laughs> so that'd be my oversimplified, uh, something body-based, cellular, uh, for the gut people, something heart-based and affectionate, uh, even though those can be traps for each of them. It's still where, where they might most often get in touch for the heart people, and some form of disciplined meditation or contemplation for the head people. Yeah. Yeah, the, the one thing I would add is that um, I think when people are getting into a practice, when we're trying to establish a practice, it's very important that we do it. Right? So we will, we will tend to gravitate to practices that are congruent with the natural flow of our, of our soul, of our personality. As a five, I, got, I like to sit in quiet meditation. I like to read philosophical tomes about all this stuff. And that was a natural way for me to get into it. I, maybe I have a seven friend who went straight to ecstatic dance and, and things like that. And that's good and natural. But I think there comes a point in your process where you have to, in a sense, challenge and, and it, it's hard to say what that is. You can't say, well, after one year, do this. But I think there comes a point where you know that you need to bring another ingredient into the process. So maybe and for me, for instance, I went into this Gurdjieff work. And after I'd been sitting quietly in meditation, I needed to get into my body. And they were handing me a shovel or a hammer. And I had to start doing another kind of inner work. So I think that 
in, in terms of starting things, it's easiest if you go with the nature of your triad. But there will come a point later in the process when, where your soul will want the next stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my question has to do with um, the process. And um, I'm contemplating what am I going to do when I leave this and how am I going to work it more and would you do you think it works better if you do it I mean it do it alone do your own inner stuff uh, whether you do it with a spiritual advisor whether you do it with another person who's struggling or you know trying to learn more about it so you know single in contemplation in study or with a group or with one other person or how do you suggest are all of the above I, I think I think you just gave yourself the answer at the end uh, all the above uh, whatever gets you there and um, I think everyone this the simple answer is we all need to do our own practice and I would suggest that anyone who's serious about the spiritual life needs to have a daily practice, a daily, daily centering prayer, daily contemplation, just time that you take to be deep within yourself, within your soul, and in communion with your God. And if you're not doing that at all, then the ego's definitely got the upper hand. We can't, if we can say, I can't take five minutes out of my day to do that, that's, that's curious, isn't it? So that is a foundation, I think, but then I don't believe we can awake in isolation. We're meant to be in community. The idea of the church, the original idea of the church as the body of Christ, that together, when two or more are gathered in my name, there will I be also is a very important part of this. And um, Gurdjieff also, speaking from the Enneagram tradition, said it is not that it is difficult to awaken by oneself. It is impossible. We absolutely need each other. So whether we're with mentors or whether we're just trying to sort it out with, with other people struggling on the path, Hallelujah for all of it. It's all necessary. And see what spirit brings you in terms of opportunities. And take them when you can recognize them. That's what I say. This question is for both of you. For the last few years, I've been confidently identifying myself as a one. And then over the last three days, I've been laying in bed, sometimes waking up in the morning early or in the evening, and I'm looking at my behavior and my interactions, and I'm saying, my God, am I really a three? And how's, how does one distinguish between a integrated one moving towards seven, an average seven, or a three with a two wing? <laughs> um. <laughs> 
I suppose I should start because that's my space. And I know uh, people have told me they, they thought, Richard, could you be a three? So I've struggled with that too. And they conclude that because they think I've done so much in my life. But I said, that's just my German work ethic. It isn't my uh, threeness. Uh, the, uh, what would I tell you to look at? I guess uh, to go back to the very basic thing, how do you get your energy, right? And we once get our energy by feeling we're good boys, right? <laughs> we're doing the right thing for the world, for the church, for ourselves, for God. You see, that, that, this high-minded idealism. The three simply doesn't have that moralistic tinge. <laughs> uh, they, they get their energy from uh, the effectiveness of the act itself, the, the seeing the movement uh, and seeing things move uh, uh, motivates them. And that's why movement and the furthering of movement can, can uh, be so exciting for a three, where it isn't movement itself. I like to see things work. But unless I know it's right, and by my criteria of right, by the way, <laughs> and that's what we always got to remind everyone. It doesn't mean it's objective rightness. Uh, and that's very important for us ones. It's our little self-defined rightness. And that needs to broaden and broaden as we get wiser. What is real rightness? But just look at what turns you on, what motivates you. <laughs> How do you, when you wake up at four in the morning, uh, what are your first thoughts about how do I get going today? Yeah, just um, just to add that for once, as far as I can tell, anger is mobilizing. It, what do I mean by that? It's like you look around. I can't believe what a mess this apartment is in right now. What I am going to get this thing cleaned and that kind of, uh, uh. it's like the anger actually gets you up and moving. It's you use it to motivate yourself, your frustration at just what a mess everything is. Right. And so there's a movement towards lifting it up, raising it up. Right. The three is more explicitly about getting to goals and getting to goals is the marker of my value as a human being. And that feels different. I would also say just as a generalization, you can't take this too far, threes are more concerned about getting to the goal. And one of their gifts is adaptability. Like, oh, this doesn't work, I'll try another way. Hey, it doesn't matter as long as we get there, that's the thing, get there. Ones will stop the project in its tracks, wait, we are not doing this correctly. We're not doing this the way it needs to be done. Hold the presses, right? Perfect. Yeah. A question to both. Um, I'm thinking about with young people, let's say teenagers or older teens who are so much struggling with who they are and personality issues and so on. And I'm wondering if uh, the wisdom of the Enneagram could be taught, let's say, through theater or skits or, you know, acting out some things so that uh, then they could, rather than reading books and so on, that they could somehow grasp what type they are and then you could work with them at that level with the group that the, the character they identify with, let's say, in theater. 
But I'm, it's just a question. I don't know if that would be valid or if it would even be uh, possible to transmit the wisdom that way. I think uh, uh, that'd be brilliant. Uh, I was a part of several conferences in Europe. Uh, the Germans love to do things like this, you know, where they'll create little theater pieces with nine different characters. They almost invariably become comedies because uh, you, you can't help but laugh at, at, at the almost predictable uh, reactions of the one type to the other. But I think it's a great way to teach it. Now, how deep the teenager can go with insight is the, another question. But still, to introduce them to it, well, it sure can't hurt. I, I, my limited experience is they tend to make a game out of it, a fun game. And teenager, are, teenagers are fascinated by self-knowledge. But uh, they haven't, I always say they haven't sinned enough. <laughs> Although it doesn't seem that way, I'm sure. <laughs> Especially to their parents. <laughs> They haven't loved enough, and they haven't suffered enough, and they haven't been forgiven enough. And those two sides, uh, yet to to have much nuancing to any of the nine types, they they can't really get it beyond traits. Uh, they, they will become fascinated by a study of traits, but they haven't sinned and suffered enough to go to energies usually. Yes. I, I I completely concur with that, and. Um, I, I would say with teenagers, it's important their self-motivation about wanting to know this. That's one thing. I know a lot of teenagers that just absolutely love the Enneagram. But I would give you just one caveat that when I'm working with young people, and for whatever reason, I get a lot of teenagers and young people coming to me, um, I don't go into the work about the passions as much, nor into the work of ego reduction, because they're still in the business of developing an ego. So I don't teach it like I would to an adult. The way I use it with teenagers is to, especially in alignment with role models, I find out who their role models are, who their heroes are, and we talk about those people as their types because what teenagers are looking for is a mirroring, a reflection of who they are and who they're trying to become, and they're trying to find out that who they are is okay. How many of us would have been so relieved to find out that the particularities of who we were was not only good, some of the people we admired the most were like us, right? So for me, for instance, as a five, to have known some of the people I most looked up to as a teenager had similar personality traits and that I could model myself on their good behaviors was would have been a huge help. So I just suggest that as you're teaching the Enneagram to young people, do it as a way to help them model and see their best qualities. And that's gonna help them a lot. Um, I've done other work in, in the notion of, of um, shadow work, and they've uh, recognized Enneagram as a, as a method for uh, shadow work. But also they bring up the notion of loyal soldiers. And I've sort of toyed in my head with the notion that loyal soldiers, so you, your type is kind of a packaging of loyal soldiers. I don't know if you're familiar with that work at all, but I'd like to understand a perspective on that. And it's directed to both of you. 
I'm not as familiar with that concept. So. Uh, Bill Plotkin, of course, uses this term a lot, a loyal soldier. Uh, and we wouldn't want to just apply it to the six, who can often be a loyal soldier. But I think it's close to what uh, Freud would mean by the superego. Right? And we as Christians have confused the superego or the loyal soldier with God or with true religion, with disastrous consequences. The loyal soldier is that part of every one of you uh, which easily uh, shames you into shape, all right? It's the early parental voices, the early moralistic voices uh, that came to you from, and some might be good, from parents, from religion, and from culture. <clears throat> uh, he has a wonderful exercise, Bill Plotkin does, of, uh, and he learned it from the Japanese, who when the Japanese came back from the Second World War, apparently many villages, recognizing that this man had now been trained as a soldier, he, he didn't fit very well back into modern society. Uh, Edward Tick's new book, War and the Soul, is recognizing the same thing. And, and seeing that soldiers in many historic cultures needed long purification rites to be realigned with society again. So he tells you, you first of all have to recognize your loyal soldier, honor him for serving you three years well in the Japanese war, and then you have to have a ritual to say goodbye to him, right? <laughs> to bless him, you got me through the war, but your skills are not the skills I need. To, uh, to survive in healthy religion and healthy society. Uh, and because we have no way of recognizing the loyal soldier, that he's good for a certain purpose, uh, he tends to take over. And that's what's happened in religion. Uh, religion confuses the loyal soldier part of us with God, uh, confusing the superego with real morality. And sometimes they're at absolute variance with one another. So I want to say it that way to, to, first of all, recognize it's in all of us, this early shaming voice that leads you by guilt and fear. Do you understand? Uh, that is not, and any good spiritual director, director can tell the difference. That's very seldom the voice. I'm going to say that's never the voice of God. Right? You can't get very far with your loyal soldier. It just gets you through the early war. You understand? But you have to find a way to honor it. It builds you boundaries, identity, ego structure, defensiveness to protect yourself. But it isn't very good for the second half of life. In fact, it's largely bothersome and problematic and, and keeps you from enlightenment, from transformation, from love, from forgiveness, from all the things that really matter in the second half of life. Yeah, I would agree that it's the part of us that most blocks the quiet voice of inner guidance. It's the, it's the part of us that most drowns out the real arising of wisdom coming from spirit. And we're so deeply conditioned from a very young age to listen to it, it's a major and really not, it's only in this time I think people are starting to understand this. It's sort of a revolution in spirituality in our era that being able to discriminate that shaming critical voice from the true voice of, well, the Holy Spirit is 
so that is the beginning of a true spiritual maturity. And that's the beginning of us truly walking our faith. What do we believe, that inner shaming voice, or are we willing to step into this unknown that we're invited to? See, and so many of us who seek leadership in religion are boys and girls, too, who totally identify with the loyal soldier, and we think that's our job. Right. To get everybody else to honor their loyal soldier. <laughs> so uh, very often ministers in religion end up keeping us in the first half of life because that's where they are. They're not bad people. Do you understand? I'm not trying to shame them now, <laughs> but they need that crossover to wisdom, to guidance, to spiritual listening. And you do not get there by guilt and shame and fear. <laughs> but those are the only voices the loyal soldier understands. So that's why many of us preachers, if we're still there ourselves, we try to lead you by shame and guilt and moral mandate, do you see? Which only keeps you and us in the first half of life. This is a question for us. I really appreciate the way that, as you've talked about the nine types, that it's good for us to look at it holistically, that I could see how very easily a type could become a programming and not something that's liberating us from our own programming. Yeah. And as we look at the symbol, four of the points as we move across, um, two, four, five, and seven, as they move across, one of the points moves across into the same triad, mm -hmm. and one moves across to another triad, mm -hmm. and one of the triads is left out. Mm -hmm. And so as we continue to do this exploration, we're working from that point of view, mm -hmm. how do we, so coming from the point of view of the seven, how do I approach the heart type in my continuing exploration because the two points that I immediately move to aren't in that triad? Okay. Um, again, I think it will help if I address it specifically through this, the, the particularity of seven. Um, yeah, not all of the types by the arrows go to all the triads, but that's it. It's not meant to be that. Um, you could think of the types in the arrows as ingredients needed to unlock the way you've limited yourself in your primary type. They're like the two keys to the prison that you've unconsciously locked yourself in. And they aren't necessarily about being in all the centers. That's, there are several things going on at the same time. It, it, we started this whole thing with the discussion of uh, non-dual thinking. One other really cool thing about non-dual thinking is you can hold multiple variables at the same time. Your, your thinking isn't just uh, an algorithm, a sequence, like do this, then do that, then turn right, then do this. That's like two-dimensional thinking. As we become more present and start to live in our body, heart, and mind more, we can, how can I say, think three-dimensionally. We can hold different variables. We can hold paradoxes. We can understand different things operating at the same time, just like life is, right? Here, for instance, with the seven, why five and one? Because they represent zones that I don't know how to integrate if I'm identified with the limited view of, of seven. So for instance, if I gain the, the five, 
What do I learn? Solitude, stillness, focus, and that that won't take away my freedom. It deepens it. Right? It's like a life lesson. What do I learn from the one? See, one of our teachings is that uh, the highest aspect of your stress direction is what ultimately dissolves your ego. <laughs> the highest aspect of your stress direction is what ultimately dissolves your ego. It's called, we call it the missing piece. So for you as a seven, what you fear is the loss of freedom. Yet what you discover is the only real freedom is absolute service. Absolute alignment with the divine will brings this endless sense of freedom. Right? It seems completely counterintuitive. If I'm just in the seven fixation, that makes no sense. Ones are those uptight people who are all into rules, and boy, they're the most against freedom, and I want nothing to do with that. Right? But as we grow and mature as human beings, as we get some of that five lesson of loving the stillness, loving the silence, loving the focus, right? then we start to understand what our real liberation is. And each type has something like that. So think of those two, not as like the balancing of the centers, but as really important lessons that you need for the unlocking of your own type. Um, I'm a, um, in, a, in a two space with a lot of one and um, I'm an NF on Amaya Briggs. Um, been doing the work a lot of years, and it, the question has a lot to do with the last two questions. Uh, when I finally read Amas's work about uh, several years ago, my heart cracked. It was a horrible thing, and my and it was good, and my head cracked. I can't say what happened in my body. I have no sense. And I'm in a scary place, but it seems to be wholly scary, but it's not holy. And part of me is like a little six boy saying, you know, please, uh, mommy, daddy, but that seems to be going away as I'm asking the question. <laughs> but please comment. The image that comes to my mind is I want to stick to keep in, to keep that, that wound open of the broken heart. And I don't mean it negatively. And the broken brain. And I want... Where else, can, I mean, just reading, I'm almost, I want nowhere else to go with this Almas stuff and this holy ideas, which broke it all open. Where else is it? What other resources? What workshops? What? Okay, thank you. That's for both, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just say uh, briefly that, yeah, I haven't really taught holy ideas here. Um, there's a difference between the core essence quality and the holy idea. Um, holy ideas are the solvents of the ego perspective, and they're powerful. Uh, one of my uh, 
teachers from Almas's school, a lady named Alia Johnson, said that not only does the ego not understand the holy ideas, it does not like them. <laughs> because it knows it's a goner if it goes there. But let me frame it in a way that might be more familiar to people. Your ego is not what awakens. Your awakening happens in the soul. It's the soul that awakens. What happens, at least in my limited understanding, the soul stops believing that it's the ego and it recognizes itself as spirit. And what makes that possible is the very grace that Christians are taught to look for, to respond to. It's a grace that releases us from this limited, hypnotic, powerful, earthbound sense of ourselves. We really think we're these pieces of meat walking around. You're not an object. You're not a thing. So the holy ideas invite us to contemplate what would reality look like if I actually knew that I, you, and everything we perceive actually is spirit, actually is just a manifestation of God. There's nothing separate. There's nothing its own package. All of that is the, the fortress of the ego. To see things as spirit is to have all of that fall away. So as you're saying, yeah, that's um, a pretty radical step. However, you're asking what you do about that. Find fellowship and friendship or like-minded, as we've said before. Don't let your mind get into the implications of it in a certain way. Be with this breath. Be precisely where you are now. And it will all start making sense. As I've said all along, as I keep saying, the grace that we need to carry us through this transformation is only here and now. So our reactivity happens when we wander away from that. Come back to now and everything you need is given. He's giving the most radical and true foundation and uh, all I would add uh, as a corollary is uh, don't search too hard for the formula, the workshop, the technique, the method, because that puts you in the driver's seat of finding it and invariably you'll choose something that is already pleasing to your ego structure. Do you understand? Yeah. So that's why the practice of the presence of God or the grace of the present moment or what Paula D'R.C. so wisely calls uh, God coming to you disguised as your life is, is a better overall method that uh, what comes to you is for the rest of your life your teacher, where you don't have any say about what it is. <laughs> How do you react to the red light? How do you react to the difficult person? How do you deal with the lost job? 
How do you deal with the loss of reputation? Those are your schools for the rest of your life. And there the ego cannot determine when they come, how they come, how much force they have. So it will always leave you vulnerable, do you see? <laughs> Whereas seeking out the more enlightened teacher or whatever, uh, I mean, do that, but that's not the greatest teacher. At the end of your life, you'll know that your life <laughs> and the events it, it brought your way outside of your control were your greatest spiritual teachers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's that, that is real non-duality too, by the way. It's like not some weird esoteric state that has nothing to do with life. That's false. That's some kind of dissociative trance. Non-duality is like looking at my glass of water and actually perceiving what's here. It's not in any way different from the life we're leaving. Russ, <clears throat> I was very intrigued with the piece of music that you played after you talked about the first triad. I was wondering if you have identified pieces of music for the other two triads, and also if there's been any uh, research done about using music in helping us with our types and even with the Enneagram. Well, yeah, that we it, any people, there's a number of people in this room who've been to workshops that uh, Don and I have given, or I've given, or with, and uh, we do trainings. We use music a lot, and I find it's a, a magnificent way of getting people to use another model into their right brain around what they've just learned, what we just talked about. We have songs for every type. We have songs for triads. We have songs. I would just say that when you use music. As with our teaching, we can pick things that sort of highlight the dysfunction or craziness of the type. I prefer to find music that uplifts and helps people see what's beautiful about them. And to help us all, it's another way that we can all sort of plug into what's magnificent about these energies in all of us. Um, so sometimes, like for the head center, I have a lot of different things I use. I might play a piece of Japanese shakuhachi music. Shakuhachi is the Japanese wooden flute where there's no other instrument. It's got all those long silences in it. And um, I actually had a piece queued up for the Feeling Tribe, but we didn't have enough time. It was a, a choral piece of, it was a, a women's choir singing in a, this beautiful, it sounds like angels singing, but it just draws on the heart. Or if I want another quality of the heart, like if I'm talking to that longing in the four, I have a piece by a, a, a wonderful Persian singer named Azam Ali singing uh, this song from Byzantium that's like 700 years old. And it just you just feel, whoa, just pulls your heart. So I think that music is a great way to help people understand this work on a on a deeper level um, right over here uh, please bear with me as i as i try to get this question out you know eckhart tolle says that unless this new consciousness evolves that you know 100 years we're not going to be around 
put the, putting the history of the Enneagram to the side, you know, my understanding, it was an oral tradition. It was sort of a secret, and it was intended, it was not intended for the masses. I'm thinking about the single mother that the nine mentioned, or the person with the type nine personality mentioned. I'm thinking about the widows, the orphans. I'm thinking globally in terms of um, the Enneagram, in, in terms of the, the, the global issues that we're faced with, poverty, racism, um, militarism. Um, question. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what the question is, except can, can, can the, um, can the, what, what in the global perspective can the Enneagram, um, in other words, for example, can America be redeemed? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get, I'm talking collectively or Mexico or any other country, what can the Enneagram do in terms of, you know, the global challenges that we have? Yeah. I understand your question. Yeah. You want me to take that? Sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's always been a bit of a dilemma for me because I think none of us want to make spirituality, because it can't be an individualistic thing. <laughs> We know that if it's true, then truth has to uh, somehow be shared in the collective conscious and the collective unconscious. Uh, and yet you and I, as little units inside of this collectivity, all we can do is work on ourselves, do you understand? But then offer these selves as, as conduits, as connectors, as bridge builders. Uh, and, and if we have gifts, to try to use those gifts in places of institutional change, corporate change, uh, uh, that we don't just sit at home, you know, on our private toadstool feeling enlightened, huh? which means that, uh, and that's our big concern at the Center for Action and Contemplation, is, is giving people some inner contemplative experience and then hopefully sending them back to a world where they can be multipliers. Uh, at a certain point, I, I found myself less and less attracted to uh, giving retreats at retreat houses because I found out so many people made retreat houses just a way of life. They weren't multipliers in society. They didn't do anything with it beyond seeking another retreat next year. <laughs> and uh, I, I think we in leadership positions have to be looking for, for uh, people like I hope you are here, who are multiplier people, who are not just using this as a smug way to feel superior. And I, I haven't felt that energy here at all. But uh, we have to connect immediately the transformative message with society <laughs> and uh, uh, in the very way I think we communicate it, uh, that it isn't taught in an individualistic way. Um, your question is very central to what we might call the Enneagram movement. And by that, I don't just mean uh, folks going around talking about types. Uh, the Enneagram has a longer history than that, and I won't go into all of that. But I would say that when Gurdjieff introduced the Enneagram, he said it was a symbol of what he called the fourth way. A fourth way is not a religion, 
it's something that appears. It's like, I think of it as a lifeline from God. And the fourth way, basically, there's just a few key things that define it. One is it's people working not on a single center, not just being ascetic, not just being a devotional, not just trying to quiet their mind, trying to work on all of it. One. Two, it's a work in life. Exactly as Richard just said, it's not a, a cloistered existence. It's not a renunciate path. It means spirituality in life, in the marketplace, as Gertrude used to say. Three, it's invisible because we're not a club. All are welcome. It's not, it, it is intended to break down the barriers between people. Fourth, it only appears when it's objectively needed for humanity to cross a gap in its development. And when Gurdjieff first talked about this, it was, you know, 1905, the Gilded Era. No one had any notion or inkling of what was lying just around the corner with the First World Wars and the Communist Revolutions and the Second World War and the atomic bomb and all. Oh, yeah, nobody could see that coming. Yet in 1905, he said, we are about to enter the most difficult period in recorded history. And he said that um, we're getting help from on high now that we can respond to, we're giving new tools to help us jump together to something that is not based in anything that we have hitherto understood. So you could say in traditional language, we're invited to a true walk of faith where we're asked to step into the unknown and not believe in all the things that we think we know. And if we don't do that, I agree with you. We'll take one more question. Richard and Russ, this is for each of you. Um, I have a, I guess it's a nature nurture question, but hopefully framed in as non-dualistic a way as I possibly can. And the question I guess is, does each of us arrive with our Enneagram number predetermined, if you will, or is it potentially modifiable by environmental factors, birth order, family circumstances, etc.? Um, I, I, I think it's um, both, of course, um, but I would say that there's far more to the nature part of it than we originally supposed. And as far as I can tell, most of the major Enneagram teachers concur on this now, that type is temperament. Uh, I know that uh, David Daniels and Helen Palmer agree about this. I know Claudio Naranjo agrees, all the, you know. But what that means is that we're not a tabula rasa. We're not a blank slate. We're born already with certain dispositions. How many women in here are moms? Okay. How many have had more than one child? Okay. Were they different when they were inside your body? They were already different. They aren't all the same. They are in your body. You can feel their energy when they're, they haven't even been born yet. And they don't change that much when they come out. <laughs> right? 
If they're around there kicking and having a party in there, they don't <laughs> just continue to do so when they're out in the world, right? If they're real quiet and, you know, then it doesn't change. But so that temperament is just there. It seems to be in our marrow. Um, is it genetic? We don't know. There are people studying that. Uh, is it that it's right down to type? We don't know. It could be that we're predetermined to maybe two or three types and then certain things in our, our childhood limit it down to one. Or maybe we really are born as just one. We don't really know. But I would just say that we, you can't blame your parents for your type. <laughs> Good. Let me just add a teeny bit. That's so good. I, I, I've moved more and more toward its, its foundational, its, its nature. And then just that nurturance and choice has to have a space. I don't know how big that space is. But I, I, and all I can do, all any of us can do is choose from our, observing our own life. But I can remember as a little boy deciding to want to be a good little boy. Do you understand? Now, I think I was already programmed in that way. Uh, I think my uh, German farm, Kansas Catholic parents certainly affirmed that, you know, so it didn't get any kind of disagreement. <clears throat> but uh, there was room for choice, freedom. There is room for nurturance to maybe shape that, that basic nature. But I certainly agree. The, the longer I work with it, I, I see it in the little kids. I, I've known Stevens, Gracie, and Luke since birth, and uh, we saw it there at the beginning. Yeah, yeah there's certainly room. Nurture is plenty important. Psychologists would say there's a difference between temperament and character. Character we develop from our childhood experiences. Or another way you could think of it, um, the better parenting we get, the more we will have a chance to start or enter life in a higher level of our type. The more uh, difficulties in either the child rearing or sometimes in the social environment around us. You know, kids growing up in enough difficult neighborhood or gee whiz, kids growing up in Iraq right now. Maybe they have great parents, but all that around them will have an effect on their character, on how they, that temperament is shaped. Sure. Think of temperament as like building material, and character is what's built from that material. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more information on this and other conferences presented by the Center for Action and Contemplation, call 505-247-1636 or visit the CAC website at www.cacradicalgrace.org.